שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשרס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש Shalom, and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Temple of Congregation, Anshay Ahmed. Joining me, my good friends, as always, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed in New York City, and Rabbi Barry Chesler from an undisclosed location in Massachusetts. It's great to see you all with Parshad Re'eh, Parshad Re'eh, a pun. It's great to see you all for Parshad Re'eh. <laughs> Re'eh. It means see, see what? See that I am placing before you a blessing and a curse. Bracha uklala. Uh, we can spend a lot of time talking about this. Let me just put the literary frame on this, which is that this theme is going to appear again at the end of the book of Dvarim in the context of good and evil, life and death. Uh, but in the broadest, in the broadest sense, What is Moshe talking about here, about the blessing and curse? Rabbi Kalmanovsky, you just want to lead us off here with the idea of blessing and curse. This, this religion is uh, premised, it makes no sense if people don't have the, uh, the ability to choose which path they're going to walk in. God has entered into a breach with this people. God has entered into a covenant, given us certain responsibilities, taken certain responsibilities upon heaven, And we are going to have to uh, remain faithful to it or betray it, okay? And so to ha- have before us blessing, curse, good life, miserable life, you know, re- reward, prosperity or suffering, those things are dependent upon our faithfulness or, or disloyalty to the covenant. So that's what Moshe is reinforcing and will, as, as you said, Uh, at the end of Devarim, say you have before, you know, blessing and curse, life and death, choose this way you're going to walk in, choose life. Right. And that's our parasha is, it's almost like a book, it's, it's like the open parentheses for a long passage will culminate in that passage. It's, it's the overture of a theme, and it's important that you mention the 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 metaphor, not a metaphor, derech, the sartem in a derech, if you veer off of the path, to go after other gods. So Deuteronomy here is going back to, it's really, it's over-pressing theme. Idolatry doesn't want you to follow other gods, but in the most general sense, it's, you know, getting off the path, off the path of, of Torah. I, you know, Barry, yeah. Yeah, we should think a little bit about the meaning of the metaphor itself. A path is a road that's been laid out by someone before us. In our case, this path is laid out by God. If we stay on the path, we do God's commandments, then we are faithful to the covenant, as Jeremy's mentioned. But if we deviate, we leave the path, that will lead us away from God and away from God's blessing. And it is a curse to be deviant. So one of the things that is... Uh this Parsha is preoccupied with is going into the land and you're going to see the remnants of other religious, other religions, other peoples in the land. Uh, you have an obligation to uproot them, remove them, destroy them. I mean, it's quite, quite uh, uh, elaborate, quite explicit. 
they have all sorts of places on the high hills, under trees, and then you are to destroy them, when he touched them at Mizbechotam, smash their altars, shibart them at Matzevotam, destroy their pillars, ashrehem tisrafun ba'esh, knock out and burn down their ashrehem, uh, their, their worship places, uvsile elohehem tigadeh, and really, you know, destroy, pulverize everything, v'yibaratem shmam minamakom and literally remove their name from this place. In other words, mow it down, completely obliterate it. And then it says, which is kind of, it doesn't really sound right. Don't do this to God. We get from that the idea that you shouldn't, you know, make any kind of desecration of God's name in, in a physical way, you know, uh, uh, throwing out the, the, the names. And so we have a whole, you know, body of law on what to do about God. But the idea really is, a, the theme is, Look, they have places everywhere, and we want you to make one place. Uh, I, I, we need to reflect on this because it touches, um, I think, some very basic ideas. Very historically, what's going on here in the people? And maybe we'll, we'll start from a historical perspective and move to a kind of, you know, more religious, uh, homiletical perspective. So a lot of times I think we kind of read the Bible backwards. We take the Torah, which presents itself as the prehistory of the people. It's the story of the Israelites before they get to the land and think that that's what happened when they were on the land. But the Torah as a document, historically speaking, really comes near the end of the first temple period, not at the beginning. And when you read the book of Samuel Kings, you know that people are worshiping both God and other gods all over the country. And now Deuteronomy is saying we're putting an end to that, that the central theme of Deuteronomy is going to be centralization, that we're going to have one place, whether it was originally in the Northern Kingdom, as some scholars believe, or in Jerusalem, and everything is going to revolve around the central shrine of worship, which is going to be the temple, which is going to become the only temple, that before this there had been small T temples everywhere, which explains a lot of curious laws in the Torah. And now we're going to have one law. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that this theme of centralization is very much wrapped up in the core of Devarim, which we begin with this Parsha, which is the extensive legal portion that goes from this Parsha until Kitavo for the next several weeks, we're gonna be wrapped up in a discussion of laws that are gonna guide our ancestors as they enter the land. That's the Torah story, but it's actually a response to conditions that in, were existent in the land. I just wanna add one last thing, that in religion, there's a well-known phenomenon known as replacement, for lack of a better word, that there are holy places, new people come in, Oftentimes, they add their holiness to that place, and it becomes their shrine. So in our context of the Torah, when the patriarchs go throughout the land of Israel, every time they find a place, they worship a tree, they build an altar. And the assumption, of course, is that they're not finding something new, but they're taking over something that was already there. Jeremy, the, the, this whole idea that anybody could do what any... The, it says that the, the, the text is ish kolayashar be'enav, which is which applies to the worship, um, and then the text moves to 
We have two polarities, really. It's everybody does whatever they wants, okay? And that's how you can get a, an altar here, a shrine there, a place there. And, I, you know, I, we were saying I could, I, I could set up my own religion. And then it's, uh, you know, do what's good and right in, in God's eyes. So, so I guess my question is, you know, we, we find ourselves in a tension in, in contemporary Judaism. The contemporary Jewish tension is, look, I, you know, I have a whole train load of tradition that tells me how to do it. And yet, I, I want to add my own, I don't know, you encounter this, uh, this issue from time to time? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that perhaps the three of us represent a, a kind of a, a traditionalist orientation in non-Orthodox Judaism, yeah. right? Like, um, I, it seems to me that Orthodox Judaism, like, you know it's working when its adherents feel like we are conforming to the way that it should be done. We're doing it right. And I think that non-Orthodox Judaism, very often, you know it's working when people are, are creating something new. And I think that I myself, I think that the three of us, we, we tend to be, you know, I think very fruitfully uh, in, in <laughs> nestled in between those things. Because I, I think what I find moving about this is that I find the poetry and the depth um, in this tradition as inherited. And, and I find that the renewal of that tradition is, is the seeds of it are already in the tradition. I don't have to, I don't have to, and I don't want to um, innovate something. But it is true that the questions in, that especially emerge from Devarim, um, you know, I, I think um, they are all about um, centralization and in a sense, in a sense, mistrusting people that they need to be controlled. So like, as Barry pointed out, there's, there's lots of evidence throughout the Bible that there was not one shrine that you will not find in the entire book of Leviticus, the idea, which all this information about the sacrifices, it will not mention even a single time that there is a single shrine. It seems to assume that there will be lots of shrines and lots of sacrifices as there were, as, as, you know, as Barry said, the, the, the um, stories relate lots of different sacrificial locations and our prophets, especially in the second in the first temple time did not trust that the people were not also worshiping other gods. And we had to root out that thing. We had to have some control at having a single shrine of a single temple and a single authority located in a single priesthood. Um, or, or as you know, we'll come to, you know, we'll come to, to say a single, a single priestly figure, a single leaderly figure. Um, is helpful to that way of thinking because it roots out people with their backsliding and it stops people from doing the bad stuff. But it's pretty hard um, to have a wide-ranging, geographically um, geographically dispersed culture without also having some celebration of difference and pluralism. So I find myself caught. Uh, I don't think that we should do whatever we want. But I also understand that the process of, of ascertaining what is Tobia Shabbat Hashem, what is what is good and upright in, in God's eyes, is a difficult to discern proposition. So uh, the way I would like to say is is that, and the way I will often say to people is, everybody knows the difference between do whatever you want and do what you think is right. 
Okay, like hopefully we have a religion that does encourage people to labor, to study, to think, to reflect, to do what they think is right, but not so disconnected from what they've inherited that it is like, you know, atomistic and and uh, like wildly like you just you yourself, because you yourself, if you do what is right in your own eyes without being, you know, not attempting to do what's right in Hashem's eyes or what attempting to do what's right in the eyes of your fellow Jews then you're not practicing a religion. You're just an idiosyncratic weirdo. So like you want to be located in a community with whom you can share this stuff. Well, that's what cults are. Cults are, are the, the uh, surrounding of, of charismatic individuals with, with people who want to follow them. And, and, and maybe at the root of this is the, the notion that, that this is part of human behavior. People will gravitate to that. And you need to, you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of it because it can be, uh, com- it can, completely destabilize uh, the, the the community or the, the broader people. Barry, you wanted to jump in there and say. Yeah, we, we should take a moment to look at the literary structure of the Tanakh. So the phrase, do what is right in your eyes, is one of the tropes in Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges. That is really the central problem that everyone is doing what is right in their eyes. And it's a book really about 12 tribes trying to come together to um, pre- present the united front against common enemies, ultimately it ends as a failure. It's followed by the book of Shmuel. And in the book of Shmuel, we have one leader, Shmuel, who's going to combine the Shofet and the Navi, the judge and the prophet, in a sense, in this person. And he's going to introduce the monarchy, which is the ultimate centralization of a power structure, where we're going to have one king now over the entire nation. And we follow the story of Shaul, King Saul, and Mela and David, King David, in the book of Shmuel, and we see that centralization is a solution, but not a solution without problems of its own. And I think the message for us, as we look at this, we look at the book of Devarim, we encounter the modern world that we live in, is that we have to be aware that there is, as I mentioned, I think last week, a polarity. You can't do everything you want, and you have to know the difference, as Jeremy said, between doing what is right and doing what you want. And we have to ultimately be aware that there is no one answer that's going to last for all time. So, so the geographic problem, I think, um, is something that the, the the text deals with at length because it's it's it it, it poses the 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 problem. If a person wants to celebrate, a person wants to eat meat, uh, they, they can't just, you know, pick up and go to Jerusalem, which is where the God's name resided. You know, if you live in, uh, I don't know, even if you lived in, you know, on the coast, or even if you lived in Beersheba, or you lived, you know, an hour, two hours north uh, in, let's say, the Galil, more, you know, two hours by car, you just can't pick your family up and take a sheep and, and, and eat some meat. And so, what the Torah spends time talking about here is ki archiv Adonai lehegvulcha. If if your boundaries, if your geographic territory increases and you want to eat meat, ki basar. What do you do to eat meat? And and we were talking before we, we started recording about this is the 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 beginning of how do we say secularization or or a non sacred form of worship or, or non-sacred living. That is to say, we, call it, we call it shchitat chulin, exactly. secular, secular slaughter. Because until this time, you know, 
whatever we exactly think it is, it's usually said to be associated with the King Josiah in the seventh century BCE. Um, uh, until this time, there's local altars and there were priests there and you wanted to have some fleshics. And so you offered a korban and you got a portion and the priest got the portion and you could do that in each town. And then when they successfully rooted out the local altars, um, did that it, people didn't people did not have a custom of eating meat outside a sacrificial context what were they going to do so were they all going were they all going full malamed on the vegan thing or uh, <laughs> um, or or uh, uh, it, you know instead what emerges is that there can be the consumption of animal flesh that is not sacrificial yeah. you can just shech the animal and cook and eat without having a sacrificial but yes when you want to uh, have a have a particularly um, emotional, particularly spiritual uh, gift to God. You have to go to have to go to the central shrine, Jerusalem or Shiloh or wherever it was before Jerusalem. Uh, if you have a chatat, you you've committed a sin, you need to expiate yourself. You have to do that in the main shrine. But uh, but you know, families can have um, as as David is said to have in the in the haftarah for. Uh, when David doesn't show up in Saul, Saul's court one day, this, he, Jonathan says he had zevach mishpacha. He had the family sacrifice. You know they could have the, they could have the zevach mishpacha for their own sac- family feast with it, without bringing it to the temple. I think it's inevitable. This tension is inevitable that that people want to do their own thing. They want to you know I I, I pose the the idea of like you know you have a celebration you 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 you've got some major milestone in your life you're retired or whatever and uh, your your first grandchild and you want to invite over people over to your to your tribal encampment and you you don't want to pick everybody up and go to Jerusalem so you know you 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 bring out a couple of sheep you slaughter them you have a feast and then you want to say a couple of words to God. You know, are, are you going to get a ticket for that? <laughs> well, one way to look at this is that all the kosher restaurants all over the country have been closed now. Okay. And now the only kosher restaurant that exists is in Jerusalem. Okay. But people are still going to go out to eat, as it were. And so there has to be this provision for them to eat in the in their local place. Um Something that's a different kind of kosher food, but it's now no longer holy. Because if you want the holy food, you still have to go to the temple, the main the main kosher restaurant. But if you want to eat meat, you have to shecht it, as Jeremy said. And the other thing that we have to remember is you have to make sure that you spill out the blood. Yeah. That even though you're killing the animal off the cultic site, as it were, you cannot eat blood. Because blood is the life force. And it reminds me, I had a teacher, Rabbi Martin Goldman of blessed memory, who liked to say that the problem in religion is not anthropomorphism, people imagining God as a human. It was the opposite. It was people imagining themselves as God. And the Bible identifies God with blood, that the life force comes from God, and that does ne- that does not belong to us ever. And we, as kosher Jews, take every step possible to make sure that we have nothing to do with the life force when we actually eat the dead animal. That, that, is, that is awesome. I want I want to just note first of all, there's a, a Mishnah in Nizarim that has the wonderful phrase like, "What's the difference between kosher animals and trape animals?" In kosher animals, God keeps 
the life and gives you the body. In trafe animal, God owns both the life and the body. Isn't, isn't that amazing? So we, you get to, you, we have this idea like God hates pigs. Actually, maybe God likes pigs even more, and that's why he doesn't <laughs> let, let us have it. But um, I think that this, this is really interesting to me about secularity because, you know, we, we are accustomed to thinking those of us, uh, th- those of us on the call who, who live in the modern era, which I think is most of our listeners live in the modern era, the postmodern era. Um, you know, we know that that from the early modern era, from the 16th, 17th century, um, uh, a world in the Middle Ages that was thoroughly religious um, opened up for more secular power and secular realms. And we have, over the last several hundred years, seen the creation of a secular realm that wasn't necessarily about religion. And so that's why we have scientists and that's why we have politicians and um, you know, that's, that's what the, that's what liberal society is and in going into the enlightenment of the 18th century and on. And in a strange way, the, the Bible with this in, with this advent of Shechitat Chulin does create the possibility that not all your um, religious act, not, not all your sacred act, oh, let me rephrase that, not all your meat eating has to be seen as religious. Now, of course, you still have to say brachot. And you still have to keep kosher. So it's not totally absent from um, religious meaning, but it's less religious meaning. Like, I think Barry said it, said it great. You know, you can, it can conform to the law, but it's no longer sacred. And I don't know. I think that, that's a puzzling um, uh, feature of, of the Torah here. All right. So we move from this to, to another idea. Uh, it's related. Uh, because it has to do with authority, has to do with who 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 gets to say and who gets to lead. Uh, this is called the Navi Sheker, the, the false prophet. Um, why do you think the Torah is concerned about a false prophet or a dreamer? What's what's going on here? What do you think it's after, Barry, in terms of authority, in terms of people? I think it fits in with the idea of centralization, that one way to think of the false prophets is that they are people with authority who have followings in ancient Israel. And they are articulating a message which is no longer acceptable, whatever it might be. And what's important for us to recognize is that why do these people have authority? They have authority because they have an oath or a mofate. There's a sign or a wonder that they could do, and that gets people as people's attention. And one could reasonably think that if you could do this sign or perform this wonder, that you must be a spokesperson for God. And those are dangerous people, because when those people give a message that is contrary to the teaching, even though it comes accompanied with the sign or wonder, which ostensibly comes from God, that that creates danger in the, in the normative society. You know, I, without, I'm thinking that for us in the conservative movement, kashrut is indispensable for our form of Judaism. In the reform movement, it isn't. So when the reform movement says that kashrut is no longer important, for us, that violates a norm. And I think that, and of course, I mean no disrespect to the reform, but for us, that's a bridge too far. That would be like a form of false prophecy. 
because the way well, we imagine Judaism, what? I was going to keep going. I'll just put my yeah, I just to just, uh, conclude. The, the way we imagine false prophecy is that there are certain messages that no matter how well intended or what accompanies them, we consider, you know, for lack of a better term, traif. Well, take, take the example of Shabtai Tzvi in the 17th century, who was a false messiah. Jeremy, you, you've read the book, right? You, you, you slogged through uh, the Gershom Sholem. I did. You know, <laughs> Orpus doorstopper biography of Shabtai Tzvi. Uh, what happened there? And, and, and are the effects of the Sabbatean revolution uh, still being felt or the, the Sabbatean cataclysm? What do you think about that? Well, there's a lot to say about, there's plenty to say about Shabtai Tzvi, but uh, um, our, our listeners, some of you may know, some of you may not know, I'll just fill you in real quick. Shabtai Tzvi in, in the 17th century was a, uh, he was like a tremendously charismatic, uh, he appears from modern, modern eyes to be quite bipolar, you know, he had these great moments of illumination and, and then great, great depression. And uh, he was he was a, you know, kind of charismatic figure in Jerusalem and Gaza. And he, he had a, a henchman called Natan, Natan Azati, Natan of Gaza, who said, oh, my God, this guy is the Mashiach for sure. This guy's the Messiah. And and the, the thing is that the two of them both, this is an interesting part about it. The two of them both were incredibly accomplished capitalists. They were very they weren't disconnected from the capitalistic. Um, traditions. In fact, they were profoundly steeped in them, and they brought out all the most transgressive, all the darkest teachings. And Natan Azati said that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah, and he got a lot of followers all through the Jewish world, Amsterdam, Morocco, Turkey, Poland, um, and and also a lot of opponents. And at a certain point, he goes to visit the Sultan in, in Turkey, and the Sultan puts him in jail and says, uh, you know, convert to Islam or I'll kill you. And lo and behold, the Messiah said, "Oh, okay. there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. <laughs> and so that, that occasioned an enormous shockwave through, through the Jewish world. Um, if you want to read a tremendous novel about it, Bashevis's novel, Satan and Gorai, is a tremendous novel about, you know, the way in which that, that disappointment shook, shook the hell out of Polish, Polish Jewish society. Um, but, you know, Shabtai Tzvi, who, was, who, who clearly was a crazy person, uh, is, is an interesting paradigm. As, as Barry said, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush says, God, oh my God, God, how am I going to get these people to believe me? God says, I'm going to do you a magic trick. I'm going to, I'm going to do you a magic trick with the stick and the snake, and they're going to believe you. Know, and, and I'll do you the magic trick with the, with the leprous hand. And if they don't believe the first one, they'll believe the second one. And your magic trick is going to be the thing that is going to inspire everyone to follow you. So what do we have in this parasha? We have people who think that they can imitate Moshe, but the Bible wants to say something, and, and I'm going to leave it up to you guys if you think that this is a stable, sustainable position. That was true for Moses, yeah. but it's not true for anybody after Moses. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard thing. We have a religion founded in prophecy that then and that loves prophecy, and we have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Yechezkel because of the greatness of the prophecy, but then wants to say, but that phase is over. And that's, it's, it's dicey. It's hard, hard to maintain. But you can see how attractive it is and how, how it's so seductive. Look, you know, a hundred and something years ago, 
the Jewish world was captivated by Theodor Herzl, who very much like Shabtai Tzvi was a charismatic individual, probably also a little bit schizophrenic, probably also a little, who knows, but uh, uh, enormously talented, enormously gifted orator, um, totally focused on, on the idea of the Jewish state with a kind of mythic, mythic uh, backstory. Um, and, and, and he, he is successful only after he dies, 50 years later. He, he, he has the great career moment because he, he, he tragically dies in the middle of the program. Uh, and it's left to successor to, to take over the Zionist project. I would, you know, without venturing too much, but, you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in, in the last century was a great colossal figure of whom many of the Lubavitch followers, you know, believed that he was indeed the Messiah. Um, and, and um, you know, they have, I think, successfully been able to transcend that, uh, that kind of spasm of charisma, charisma into, into forming a successful movement. So, so there's a lot to be said about, about leadership and dreamers and, and um, you know, can I say one thing about that? In another, in another context, um, you know, in, in LDS church, Latter-day Saints, Mormon church, sure. the idea is that every person, every man, I think it's a pretty sexist situation as far as I understand this to be, uh, every man has prophecy and every, every man, um, has a, a message from God about how to lead his family. And there's a great book. And, and so like you're, you're, you're socially integrated, quote unquote, normal or conventional Mormons. They handle this. They live in communities. In fact, they live in incredibly um, intertwined. I, I was on a junket out to Salt Lake a number of years ago and learned a little bit about, about this and learned uh, that that the um, some of the doctrines of this church, uh, you'll forgive me for saying, seem pretty loopy, but the communities that they build seem totally amazing. People give tzedakah, people are, care for each other, they, are, they volunteer at an incredible rate. So I think that plenty of people handle that gift, but the so-called fundamentalist Mormons, the people who live out in the compounds, the polygamous families, they can just lose any sense of proportion. This is a great book by the journalist John Krakauer called uh, Against the Banner of Heaven about these murders that happened because people got prophecy, right? They got prophecy um, that they were supposed to kill so-and-so. And they have no, they have no um, halacha to check the prophecy against. So, it, you know, we began this conversation with Barry making the very great observation that it's the path. You have to walk the path and you shouldn't turn from the path left or right. And the path can lead to blessing or the path can lead. To, our, the very practice of Judaism is called halacha, walking, walking paths. And so we do have an appreciation for following what you think is right. But it also has to be within the path that we can all share. Because once it deviates from that path, then God knows where you're going to end up. And you're going to end up doing all kinds of bad stuff. Okay, so with, with this, we, and we're running out of time, let's conclude with, with chapter 14, verse 1. You are children to God. Do not gash yourselves. Do not make any kinds of uh, physical wounds between your eyes for the dead. And of course, you know, these are, this is a specific commandment relating to uh, the very, very outlandish, what we would call outlandish rituals surrounding death 
uh, and bereavement in the ancient world, but the rabbis take it in a different direction. Lotid godadu, they say, means don't make little agudot agudot, little bands. And this is kind of what we've been talking about uh, for for the entire parsha. Uh, and and um, the idea that you could separate yourselves, you could make little, you could cleave as as a community. Jeremy, you want to you just kind of elaborate on this, weigh in on it a little bit in terms of just, you know, what, what are we afraid of here? What is the Torah afraid of? What are the rabbis afraid of? What are they afraid of? I think, I think they're afraid of disintegrating. You know, just a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, the Torah said, you know, it's not because you're the most numerous people, because in fact, you are the smallest among all the nations. And I think that there's a great anxiety in this religion about fragmenting and, and being often isolated because we do have a sense of Am Yisrael. And so we have to, to share practices. And the balance here, Loti to go to do, as the rabbis, there's a wonderful sort of developed Talmudic disquisition on this on this topic in Tractate Yuvamot about the ways in which Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai gave each other space to be pluralistic. They gave each other space to disagree and even act on their disagreements because everybody is attempting to do what is right in God's eyes, even though they differ on what the content is. So that, that passage, um, you know, reads in the Talmud like a, I think a finely wrought balance of acceptance of pluralism and difference and a demand for communal connection so that we can continue to live in the same religious universe. Listen, if if some people, obviously some people can, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, just to take examples of, of, of fair, like, fairly picayune distinctions, I mean, if, if you eat, if you eat, you know, cheese without a hexure, and I, and I don't eat cheese without a hexure, we can still recognize each other as practicing Judaism. If you decide you're not going to circumcise your male children, you know how can we be how can we be um, considered to that that's like so central to this religion? How can we be considered to be practicing the same religion? Of course, I know. By the way, that lots of Orthodox people look at me and say, "What you count women in the minion and you would let women read the Torah?" That's not the same religion that I'm practicing, and they can they can make that challenge against me. I, I can't stop them from saying that. I can just argue against it, but. I think that if we share practices, we will continue to feel like we are part of the same covenantal community. But if our practices diverge too much, we won't feel like all part of Am Yisrael, part of that covenantal breed community. Very. Any, any? Yeah, I think that it's important that we have an enlarged sense of community. That very often it seems that when we want to set ourselves apart from the community for often very good reasons, we end up creating a new community. And the, the rabbinic caution here is that we are part of Klau Yisrael, the entirety of Israel. And we have to remember not only that we belong, but everyone else belongs too. And we have to be very careful about leaving ourselves and also about reading other people out of it for reasons that ultimately may not prove as important as we think. I'm reminded there's I went several times with my high school to Israel for the senior trip, and we spent some time at Kibbutz Keturah each time. And I remember one of the people telling a story about how some of the arguments were so divisive that it was very difficult to walk into the dining hall the next day and eat with people 
that you had bitter arguments with, but those that were committed to the kibbutz did because the community was what was most important, not necessarily the individual. Now, obviously the individual has to find his or her place in the community, but we have to remember that the community is the e-card, the central thing. And here, I just wanna conclude with this idea from Martin Buber that community has God as the living center. And I think that's a guide for us as well. And that is perhaps the message of Sefer Devarim, that God is the author or the creator of our path. And our job is to follow what God wants and to the best that we can. And there's nothing like Torah to stitch a community together. And I think, you know, the key to the cohesion of the Jewish people, I think starts and ends with Torah. The, if we could all get around a text together uh, from the various perspectives that we have, um, you, we would find that, that we have a lot in common. I just want to end with this. You know, there's this program on, on Israeli television called She'ela Uchuva. It's a fascinating, fascinating program where they take a, a person who has Choser B'She'ela, right? He, he, he leaves, you know, religious, usually Haredi life, and they take a person who is a Choser B'Tshuva, a person who is newly religious, they put them together at Be'i Bialik, at the Bialik house, and they sit across the table, and what do they do? They sit and read texts, and they realize in the course of, you know, the half an hour, 35 minutes, that, that they're bound to each other. It's just a fascinating idea. And look, the three of us, you know, we, we are bound together. I think there's, we have so much more in common than divide us. Of course, we're not, we're not you know, in any way, uh, you know, demonstrative of, you know, a, a completely pluralistic community. We're, we're all three guys. But um, we're, we're a, a, I think, a symbol of the unique power of Torah to bring people together. And we're so happy that the people who have joined us all across the world have shared their 38 minutes with us today before Shabbat, before this week. We thank you for joining us to have some Torah, to share some ideas, thinking about the way of the, of the Jewish people, the Derek. With that, we want to say to all of our friends at Machanaram also, Shabbat Shalom. See you soon. Shabbat Shalom.